Now, some of you may be wondering what do Lord of the Rings, Frozen, and uh, Thor, the first Thor movie, all have in common. That is one very simple answer. It is Coronation Day. And it is Coronation Day for our King Jesus. So there's something different. There's something different about our King Jesus over Thor, over Elsa, over King Aragorn. It's that our King is a different kind of King. And we see today that it is a different kind of coronation that takes place. And so we really have to set the scene to really squeeze out everything that this scripture offers us today. And the first thing that we have to take into account is that it's Passover. And all of the Jewish people are coming into Jerusalem. And it is, it is something that they had to do at least once in their life. Make it into Jerusalem for Passover. It's a big deal. They're going for the ceremonial cleansing of their sin by the death, by the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. They are traveling in large numbers into the city of Jerusalem. But that's not the only thing that's taken place. We're in John 12 today, and what has just happened previous to where we start off today is Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and he says, Lazarus, come out of that grave and one of the ladies nearby says, but Jesus, isn't he going to be really stinky in there? He's been in there for four days. Jesus says, no, Lazarus, come out of that grave. He doesn't just do it for a small party that is there. He does it for a group that is around. People see Jesus have, having conquered death. People are seeing Jesus take a man that's been dead for four days and say, come up out of that tomb, Lazarus. Come out of that grave. And those people... Those people are excited. Those people know that it's Passover. They know that they're all about to head into Jerusalem. And so where we start the story off today, we have two very large crowds converging upon each other. You have the crowd that has followed Jesus from bringing Lazarus up out of the tomb, and you have the crowd that is already making their way into Jerusalem for Passover. And so that sets the scene for us today. The triumphal entry is where we are the very next day, John 12, 12 through 26 is where we're going to be. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, how many people are we talking here? When we look at Passover and we have this large crowd that's following Jesus, we have them gathering together with the large crowd going into Passover. There are just a couple of years after this, there's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus, and he said that there were 200 and 56,000, 256,000 lambs that were slain at a Passover that takes place just a couple of years after this. Now, that's a lot of lambs. I've never seen that many lambs in one place. I've certainly never seen that many lambs slaughtered in one place for the sins of people. This had to be quite the scene. So if you take the number of lambs, 256,000, and you take into account that one lamb generally covered 10 people, so Jewish families were a little bit larger, so you had, you know, five, six, seven people, and then they were generous people, so they brought all of their single friends in, so they didn't have to worry about getting a lamb. And so what you have is about 10 people per family, and so how many people are at this Passover potentially? How large is this crowd that has come together? And this is all important because it sets the scene for what we're about to see in Jesus entering into the city, you have 256,000 lambs multiplied by 10. There are approximately 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem that weekend. 
Now, here in the city of Phoenix, we just had the Super Bowl and the waste management open. The biggest party on earth was right here in the desert. There wasn't an Airbnb that wasn't booked that weekend. We have the same situation going on here in Jerusalem. We have Jesus raising people from the dead. We have Passover feast that we're all going in together on. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and these things had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Today, within the scripture, within verses 12 through verse 26 in chapter 12 of John, we have three scenes that take place. And in this first scene, we see that we have a king presented. But there's a problem here. The problem here is that the king that is presented is not the king that they expected. Now, to really get the full context of what is taking place here, we have to do a little, a little history lesson. Jesus was not the king that they were expecting because they were expecting someone else, someone that was carrying a sword, somebody that was riding in on a war horse. They were expecting somebody to take the battle to Rome because Rome had occupied and oppressed them. Rome was ruling over them, and they wanted freedom once again. And so they were looking back through their history thinking, we need a ruler like that. We need a king that is going to come in here in this Passover feast, who's going to ride in in power, who is going to usurp the domination that Rome has put onto us. We want to be free again. And so they look back into their history and they find a man who led the charge against the Greek oppression hundreds of years earlier. And this name was, man's name was Mattathias Maccabeus. And he had five sons. And as, as, as Greek oppression... Alexander the Great takes over that part of the world. He dies, and then it is divided up amongst his generals. They go down the Mediterranean Sea. They take over Jerusalem. They rule very lightly. But eventually, somebody named Antiochus IV and another guy named Lysias of the Seleucid Empire, a branch off of that reign of Alexander the Great, they come in and they say, you know what, this is a great fortified place for us to go and attack people in Egypt. We want to set up camp right here. Well, what do they do? They put a high priest that is very light on his conviction within the Jewish faith, and he allows them to set up all kinds of gods Greek gods, we have Zeus, and you know, Zeus's son Hercules. If you watch the, any Disney movies, you've probably seen that one. And they set it up in the temple. And what Mattathias Maccabeus says is, not on my watch are we going to be worshiping any other god than Yahweh in this temple. And so what he does is he realizes he doesn't have all the men that he needs. And so he goes full on Patrick Swayze in Red Dawn, the 1980s movie, and he gets his son and he gets a bunch of other bad boys in the neighborhood and they go out into the mountains and they start picking these guys off one by one. And then he dies. And then he appoints his third oldest son, whose name is Judah. And Judah Maccabeus, 
He's a lot better boy than even his daddy was. He takes it to him even more so. He gets 300 men and takes down thousands of men. He knows the terrain. This was the area he grew up in. This was a man that was going to get the Greek oppression out of Jerusalem. And he has victory after victory. At one point, he has 3,000 men. And Greece comes in with 20,000. And as they go to attack them in this camp, because they're light, they flank them and they go attack their camp. And 20,000 men, think 3,000 men, just overpowered them. They get scared and they go all the way back home. And so when we look at this picture, you have all of these Jewish people gathering for Passover. And they're all looking for this Messiah figure. And so when they see Jesus roll into town, this guy just raised a dude from the dead. If this guy can raise a guy from the dead, he can make these Roman oppressors go from life to death so much easier. This is the guy that we need to be our Messiah. This is the guy that we need in charge. This is the man that will liberate us from Roman oppression. This is the man that will free our temple of pagan worship. This is the man who will allow us to live free again. And so this is Palm Sunday. If we're people that ask good questions, we have to ask the question, what is going on with these palm leaves? It's kind of weird that people just take these things. Do they shimmy up the tree? Do they chop them off? And then Jesus is coming into town. Hey, you know all those palm trees we just chopped down off of that palm tree? Let's throw those on the ground out in front of them. This is going all the way back to Mattathias Maccabeus. This is going all the way back to Judah Maccabeus, a.k.a. the Hammerer, is what his nickname became. He is a legend. Because of him, they celebrate Hanukkah to this day. Anytime he came back into town after a big victory, they took the palm leaves and they threw it out in the street as a symbol of celebrating. And so what is up with the palms? They're going back. They're having a throwback moment where they say, hey, you guys remember the freedom that these guys brought us. This is the same thing that we are looking for in Jesus. We want him to deliver us just as Judah, just as Mattathias did. And then in verse 13, they say, Hosanna. And what Hosanna is translated to is, save us. And they are quoting a messianic psalm here in Psalm 118. Save us, Jesus, from this Roman oppression. Set us free from this government. There's a problem. That's not the Jesus that was coming into town. It wasn't the same kind of ruler, and Jesus was not the same kind of king. He came to save him, but it wasn't from Rome. The thing that Jesus came into Jerusalem to save them from was their sin. The thing that Jesus knew was in front of him as he set his face toward the cross was to save them not just from their sin, but from death and to have victory over both, to render the enemy useless. And these crowds, these crowds that say, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us, on Monday are the same crowds that at the end of this week, as we celebrate Good Friday, are the same crowds that shout, crucify, crucify, crucify. My question to us as a church this morning is we can read this and we can get caught up in the history of it, but we need to read God's word as if every single bit of it is applicable to our lives. And so if we know that every bit of this is applicable to our lives, what is it that we're saying Hosanna to? 
What is it in your life that you are crying out to, save me, save me, save me. Save me from my life that's not going according to plan. Save me from the job that I feel like I'm stuck in, that I feel like is a dead end. Save me from this marriage that started off all right, but is now a struggle. And I feel like I went from having a best friend to a roommate to now we're just enemies living under the same roof. Save me from the relationships in my life that aren't working out. What is it that we are crying out, save me, save me, save me too? If it's not Jesus, it's not going to work. If you're crying out, save me, Hosanna, Hosanna to your finances. Your finances are only a resource from God to be used for the sake of the kingdom here on earth. They cannot save you. They can distract you away from being saved. Is it your job? Is it your security? Maybe it is relationships. Maybe you're saying, save me relationship, and you're placing that relationship as an idol up on the throne, as an al- on the altar to worship. And that thing can never be worshipped because that thing can never save you. What is it that you are crying out Hosanna to? Let's identify that. Let's take it off the throne that it does not belong on. And let's place Jesus back on that throne. The next thing we see in verse 14 is Jesus' answer to these crowds as they are saying, Hosanna, 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 as they are looking for him to be Judah, the hammer, Maccabeus. And Jesus' answer, he calls his disciples over. He says, hey, I want you to go get this donkey. This donkey's never been ridden on. And I guess the disciples, they just walk over there. They tell this donkey owner, he's like, you know what? All right, I heard that dude just brought a guy back from the dead a couple days ago. No questions asked. Here's my donkey. Maybe Jesus just prearranged it. I'm not sure what's happening here, but Jesus gets this donkey who has never been sat on. Why is that important? Because this is to fulfill Scripture. Prophecy is fulfilled as Jesus does this, as it is stated in Zechariah 9.9. But why a donkey? Why did Jesus go and sit on a donkey? This is just a farm animal, right? Well, actually, it was a royal beast not just a beast of burden, but as kings rode into town, you could tell what their intention was based off of the whip that they rode in on, all right? If they meant business, if they were going to take over, if they were in for a fight, they were coming in on a war horse. But if they meant peace, they were coming in on a donkey. And so as the crowd swelled and they said, Hosanna, 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 save us, like our renowned legends of old, Jesus answers, and he sits on a donkey, and immediately they knew this is a little bit different. This king comes in peace, not with a sword, not this time. I think this changed their expectation of Jesus and who they thought he was going to be. They thought he was going to bring the sword. They thought he was going to save them, and instead he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to save you, but I'm going to save you from something so much bigger. I'm going to save you from something that you can never save yourself from. I'm going to save you from something that doesn't matter how big your army is, as there are 256,000, give or take, spotless lambs being slaughtered for your sin. I am going to be the once and for all sacrifice for your sin. I am the spotless lamb. I am going to take care of sin. I am going to take care of death. I am going to take care of the enemy. And I do not come to overthrow government but I come to die for you. Their expectation was changed. And now when Jesus comes back, 
So we read in Revelation 19, it's not going to be Mr. Rogers, Jesus. He's not riding in on a donkey. When Jesus comes back, we're getting full-blown Sir William Wallace, Braveheart Jesus riding in on a war horse, going to set things straight. There's going to be some judgment. There's going to be some things that, uh, there's going to be some war that takes place, and Jesus is going to take care of sin, the enemy, and death once and for all. I think they needed to change their expectations. Of Jesus. They had something set in their head that needed to be tweaked. And I think when we think of Jesus, we could probably stand to do the same. I think that we probably have an expectation, not what they were looking for in a militaristic Jesus, but in a peaceful Jesus. And certainly Jesus is peaceful and Jesus is militaristic all at the same time. He is full of grace and love, but he also came to bring a sword. I think what we think we are going to get when Jesus comes back, or at least the way that we operate with Jesus in our lives, is if he is only peaceful Jesus, as if we should only continue to sin so that grace can abound more. And that is not the case. We should be killing sin in our lives because Jesus isn't coming back, and he's not going to be cool with the temptation that you continually fall into if you are one of his children. He's not going to be okay with you completely being defeated over and over and over again, never relying on him and his strength, never relying on the strength of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside you as a follower of his. He's not going to be okay with the habits and the patterns and the way that our character has been twisted and marred because of the sin in our life. And so what is it that we need to be doing as we prepare for Jesus before he comes back on his war horse? We've said it the past few weeks. We need to be killing our sin before our sin kills us. We need to be identifying false teaching and getting rid of it. We need to be defending what God has put in our care. Moms, dads, love, serve, protect each other. Love, serve, protect your children. Our king is coming back. Let's make sure that our families are prepared. Let's make sure that our friends are prepared. Let's make sure that our workplaces are ready. Let's give them the whole truth. Let's give them love Let's give them truth. Let's tell them that there is a need for Jesus and it's because of sin in their life and that the only way that sin can be forgiven is through the work of Jesus on the cross. There is only one way into the gates of heaven and that is through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the work of Jesus on the cross, being made right in relationship with him, trusting him as your Messiah. As these people cried out, Messiah, Messiah, Hosanna, save us. They were crying it out in the wrong sense. They wanted something physical. They wanted something tangible. But what little did they know that the thing that was coming to save them would set them free, not just temporarily until another ruler came in, but for eternity. And that is the same thing that has been offered to us. Let's not lose that. Jesus is love and Jesus is truth. That means that we have some things inside of us that need to change, which means our expectations need to change. Verse 16, I just, I love this. I feel like in my walk with the Lord, I can be a middle school boy quite a bit. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done to him. 
you have these disciples of Jesus. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal people over and over. They saw him take a couple of uh, fish and some bread loaves and feed 5,000 people with it. They saw him feed 4,000 people with it a, a few steps down the road from there. They've seen Jesus do incredible things. Don't forget, they just saw Jesus raise his friend from the dead. And still, they're lost. Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, what do you mean go get that donkey? We could call like an Uber Black up in here. Like we could get you a nice ride as we go into Jerusalem. Let's get that war horse. We've got a Clydesdale over here. Jesus, what are you talking about? Go get this donkey nobody sat on. They didn't get it. And there's so many times in my life where I just, I don't, I don't get it. Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, what are you saying? Thank goodness I have a week to prepare a message before I have to open my mouth in front of you because I get to read a lot of commentaries. I get to talk to a lot of pastors because I have a lot of questions. Goodness, Jesus, what is going on here? Just like the disciples, I didn't get it. And when did the disciples get it? They got it when he was glorified, and it was not until he was glorified. It it wasn't after the crucifixion. Well, it was after the crucifixion. It wasn't before. It wasn't before the resurrection. It was after the resurrection. It wasn't before his 40 days of making appearances to the disciples and other people like on the road to Emmaus. It was after. It was only when Jesus ascends into heaven after he gives the Great Commission and that's when they get it. As Jesus is going up into the clouds and they're looking up at him like, oh, snap. Hey, man, did you... Maybe he is who he's been saying he is this whole time. A light bulb goes off in their head. Oh, okay, ah, yes, now I get it. And when it comes to us not getting Jesus, I think we can be the same way. And so if it wasn't until Jesus was glorified in the lives of the disciples as he ascends into the heaven, we too as a church, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of his, should be seeking that he would be glorified in our lives. Jesus, show me how you have risen. Show me how you are in authority. Show me how you have power. Show me how you are over this in my life right now. Jesus, I'm trying to read the Bible right now, and I just don't understand what's going on. Please either give me a resource, give me a person, give me a pastor, give me someone who can help me understand this. Holy Spirit inside of me that inspired this to be written originally, illuminate this that is in front of me now so that I can read this and have some kind of idea as to what I am reading. It is not until Jesus is glorified in our lives that we will have an aha moment. May Jesus be glorified in our lives. In verse 17 and 18, you see that the Pharisees are starting to feel a little shaken. You can see that they're, uh, they're starting to feel a little defeated. You can see that they're starting to feel like they are losing power. They already felt this way earlier in the book of John. You see them plotting the death of Jesus. As soon as Lazarus comes back from the dead, they're like, great, now we have more than one guy that we have to kill. Let's be real sneaky about this. He just brought this guy back from the dead. Now we have to kill him too. And they're feeling defeated because the crowds, as they scream Hosanna, as the crowds are, are reciting Psalm 118, this messianic scripture, They're feeling defeated because, as they say, look, the world has gone with him. But as we know, as we can pan out, because we are not stuck present in this moment, we can see that, again, the same crowds that said, Hosanna, save us, are the same crowds that screamed, crucify. In this moment, the Pharisees don't know that, and they think, look, 
The world has gone after him. There's nothing that we can do. And we have seen in the Gospel of John, we have seen across all of the Gospels that the crowd turns and that people continue to turn. And that's where we come in. How nice would that be? Look, the world goes after him. Not, not then. Certainly not then. Maybe in that moment, it's easy to be hyped. It's not easy to be devoted. It's not easy to be committed. It's not easy to be loyal. It's not easy to stick to something that you say that you believe with all your heart when times get tough, when trials come. And that's where we come in as believers. The world has not gone after him. So now it's up to us to live in a way where the world sees the change inside of us from before we knew Jesus to now that we follow Jesus, to live that out in front of them so that one day the world will come to know him. And there is more of this in John, verses, or in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. We'll get, that, get to that in just a little bit. But, but first, this is pretty cool. This probably took place the day after Jesus entering into Jerusalem, verses 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, probably because he had a Greek name, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew, and Philip went and told Jesus. I don't know if Philip was just nervous to go up to Jesus by himself, but he had to get his homeboy, and they together went to tell Jesus, hey, uh, these Greek guys, they want to see you. Now, this is pretty darn cool here, because what this shows us is that there are Gentiles that are present at the end, well, the beginning of the end of Jesus's life, which sets up a bookend, because at the beginning of Jesus's life, we see that there are Gentiles there, which makes it to where now the gospel is not exclusive to Jewish people and Jewish people alone. Now the gospel is for all of the world. Now the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles. Jesus came to save not just one people. Jesus came to save everyone. And we see that from the very beginning in the details of his birth. God made sure there were Gentiles there and the wise men all the way to his death when the Greeks show up and these guys were hungry for knowledge. It is only stated here once, sir, we wish to see Jesus, but it is implied that these guys were forceful. Hey, Philip, hey, Philip, hey, Philip, hey, Philip, hey, Philip, can we go see Jesus now? Hey, can we go see Jesus now? You ever gone on a road trip with your kids? Just imagine that in this situation. Are we there yet? Is Jesus here yet? Can we go talk to Jesus? And keep in mind, there's 2.5 million people around. There's a lot of people that want Jesus's attention But these guys, they want it. They're hungry for it. And they'll do anything that they can to get before Jesus, even if it comes down to being forceful. They want to be in his presence. They want his truth. They want his knowledge. And so my question to you is, are you just as hungry for Jesus as these Gentiles? Now, these guys were persistent. These guys wanted truth. These guys didn't have the Bible in front of them. Are you hungry? Do you want truth? This is something you say you believe. Okay? Are you being forceful with it? Or are other things in your week coming into the picture and forcing the word of God out of the picture? 
This is something that we say we would die for. This is saying something that we say that we would live for and live by. And so if that is the case, that means that we need to be spending time in the Word. So are we spending time in the Word, or are we just showing up to church on Sunday saying, no, this is enough. I just want a little Christian snack for the week. Or are we taking advantage of this thing that we can feast on any time of the day, more accessible than any point in human history, we can pull this thing up on our phone in 60,000 different translations. I think there's even a Gen Z translation now, so your kids can understand it. King James, if you're over 70 in here, you can understand that. <laughs> I'm just going to stick to ESV, because you know me. We've got God's Word available to us. I think we should be spending time in it. There was a study that was done recently that it says if you read God's word once a day, it's really not going to have that much effect in your life. Or once a week, I'm sorry, once a day would be great. <laughs> once a week, really not much effect. Twice a week, still really not that much effect. Three times a week, still, surprisingly, really not that much effect. Maybe a little. Maybe you're nicer to people. But there's something about four times a week, according to this study. At four times a week, minimum, addiction started falling off in people's lives, 60 to 80 percent, depending on the thing that they were addicted to. Depression and anxiety dropped 80 to 90 percent by people spending time in God's Word at least four times a week. No book is going to do that. The living and breathing Word of God is going to do that. Let's go for change. You've been saved. That's good. Pasco, collect $200, get to heaven by the end of your life. That's terrific. I want more of Jesus before I get there. I want to weather the storm with him. I want to go to the source of truth, the source of life in my life, and that is the word of God. And for me, that means four times a week minimum. It means getting in God's word more than that. I want to see a change in your life. I want to see a change in this church. And so let's get, let's be like the Greeks Let's get a little pushy. Let's get a little forceful because the world has been pushing its way into our lives over and over and over. And it's time we stood up and said, no, this is my priority. This is what I'm going to make time for before anything else. And then to let the world come in and I will deal with it in the way that Jesus calls me to. Last chunk of scripture this morning. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Again, this is just one of those things. Jesus starts telling a story. He gives an analogy, a little parable like this. And I'm like, all right, Jesus, hold up. I'm not a farmer. What is going on? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Our third final scene this morning, the king proclaims. These people are going to him. You are the Messiah. Save us, save us, save us. The Gentile Greeks are going to him. Give us your knowledge. Give us your knowledge. And then finally, he 
lays it down, and he starts with, the hour has come. Up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been very private. Jesus' ministry has been out in public, yes, behind closed doors mostly. He has been sneaking around through the back alleys of towns. He's been traveling in the night. He has not been wanted, he has not wanted to have been spotted because the crowds would just grow and grow and grow. Anytime Jesus was in town, everybody knew about it. Everybody got their ticket well in advance, and everybody was making sure they showed up 30 minutes before showtime because something was about to go down. So Jesus has been keeping things low-key. Not anymore enter Jerusalem. I know what this week holds. It's go time. The hour has come for the man, the son of man, to be glorified. It's time to do what he came to do. And then he gives this illustration of the wheat. And in this illustration of the wheat, what he is proclaiming is that life comes from death. And it is only by dying that life will come into this world to spread life and to bring life to others. You can take a piece of wheat, and that piece of wheat is just going to be a piece of wheat as long as it is in your hand. But as soon as it is plucked from the ground, as soon as it is buried, it dies. And as it dies, the outer shell disintegrates. What's in that wheat, then as a seed, as it is watered, as it is nourished, as it germinates, it starts to grow. And each one of those seeds on that grain of wheat create another stalk of wheat. And you, comp- you, you do that process over and over and over. You go from one thing of wheat to eventually a field of wheat. You keep repeating that over and over and over and over, and eventually the entire world is covered in wheat. What Jesus is saying is that I must give up my life in order for you to grow. I must give up my life in order for you to be forgiven. I must give up my life in order for the Spirit to fill you. I can only do so much as one man. But as the Spirit fills you, Jesus says that you will do even greater works. The things that I am doing, you are going to need the Holy Spirit that has been my power to do these things the whole time inside of you. Now do the things that I have been doing. As I give my life for the world to have life, now you take my life. You live the life that I should have lived. You go out into the world, and for the people that are dying, you bring life to them. And then, verse 25, whoever loves his life must lose it. This means that we have to die to ourselves. This means that we have to live for Jesus. If we want true life, we must die to the things that we want here on this earth. If we want a fulfilled life, we can't fill our life with the things of this world that society, that culture say, hey, this is going to make you happy. We must lay those things before the throne of Jesus and say, no, only you offer true life. And I want that true life, Jesus. I want that eternal life. The way in which we get that life and then live loving and serving others will make it look like we are looking forward to the life ahead of us as we are longing for home as we've been discussing week after week for the past seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks in First Peter. First Peter's just riffing off of what Jesus is saying here. Live in a way here that makes it look like you are just longing for there. This doesn't mean actually hate your life here. But love your life there and what is ahead of you and look forward to it so incredibly much that it looks like there is no love 
for this life here. If what the world does and how they live and the way that they act and the way that they deal with certain things that come up, if that is loving life, make it look like you hate life here because you are loving me and you are serving other people. And then he closes out in verse 26, and we see that to serve Jesus is to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to be found in Jesus. So to make this as simple as we can, if we serve Jesus, then we love God and we are loved by God, and then we love other people. If we follow Jesus, this means that he leads the way for our lives. We do what he has called us to do. We do not any longer call our own shots, but we live by the will of God alone. How do you know the will of God? You've got to spend some time talking to God. You've got to spend some time in God's truth, which is the word, his Bible. You've got to fill your life with this truth. And then, as we are found in Jesus, as we are serving and loving him, serving and loving other people, as we are following him, then God will honor us through his work in Jesus as we live out our life following him. So, before we leave today, it is our goal as a church to be the church and to display the kingdom as soon as we leave these doors. Actually, if you want some little bonus credit, you can start doing this right now. But specifically when we leave today, four points. How are we to be the church, display the kingdom, apply these scriptures to our life, expect the unexpected in Jesus. Verse 12, look to Jesus alone to save you. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Psalm 118 belongs to him and to him alone. We see that in verse 14. Pursue Jesus. Stay hungry for his presence and knowledge, as we see in verse 21, and be found following Jesus in your service to him and to others, as we see in verse 26. It's going to be a good week. I'm looking forward to worshiping with you, to continuing on in this story Friday night, and then celebrating, spoiler alert, the resurrection of Jesus next Sunday morning. Let's pray.